And welcome back to Fully Equipped. Jay Wall, RB, Uncle Gene, serial killer. <laughs> you know, I just wish that people could hear the shit that goes on before we hit record. <laughs> the hilarity that ensues. Uh, anyway, we at some point, guys, we do need to we do need to release the footage of what transpired last week. That was <laughs> arguably my favorite moment of all time since we started recording this podcast. Two hundred twenty nine episodes, to be exact. Um, anyway, how are we doing, boys? Well, technology is great when it works. I mean, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I was the brunt of that joke, and uh, without What's anybody God? knowing exactly what happened, I apologize to Coach and to my my fellow pod hosts for uh, that lapse in uh, technological uh, assistance. You didn't need to apologize, man. It's one of the few times in my adult life I woke up from sleeping laughing, remembering it. I mean, that was like, I was giggling like a baby when I woke up thinking about that. So I, sh- I am very sh- thankful for that. Very rarely does a middle-aged man get that kind of joy reflecting on something. Uh, we should Stay tuned to the social channels. We are going to release this clip yes, at this we, point. We've, yeah. we've talked too much about it. We'll, we, we, we got, we got to do it. Long story short. The best part is I look like the only adult in the room trying to figure yes, the whole thing yes, out. So yes, that's you, basically you how it goes every You week. definitely were the parent, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Long story short on that, <laughs> Coach was trying to offer up a take on Phoenix and the crowds. It was he was he was trying to he was trying to to clear up some inaccuracies that were out there, <laughs> and Chris for whatever reason couldn't hear any of us. He he just heard Coach initially, and like about every thirty seconds or so, Chris would say, <laughs> "Voice of God." I mean, I I heard, I heard Coach, but it was just it was so and he was dead it was just deadpanning, and everybody thought he was just. Just screwing with Coach. <laughs> coach eventually got pretty pissed and wondered if it was a bit. It was a great moment. Great moment in pod history. We will release it because it is hilarious. Um, anyway, uh, well, what do we got? Mexico this week out on tour. Not a lot going on. Last week was a big week at Riv. Oh, why don't we kick things off with Hideki? And not for the reasons that you think. I, yeah, I, I guess I did post pictures of his putter. It is, it is a – it's not – in the realm of like the tiger scotty cameron newport 2 gss but it is it is a pretty special putter but i don't want to talk about putters i don't want to talk about hideki's clubs i, I want to talk about one piece of gear in particular and that would be the shafts rb you did a story on on hideki's setup but you focused in on his shaft setup this is guys this is a weird one for me because typically you see you see pros, and they might, if they're playing X-Flex in the woods, they're usually playing X-Flex through through most of the bag, maybe until you get into the wedges and you see them step down into like a, an S400 shaft. But RB, as as you penned in this article, that's not the case with the decky. He, he has a pretty weird setup. It is it is unique and the you know what's interesting about this as well is if we go back the week before it's actually a very similar setup to Nick Taylor and if we look back in history it's another similar setup to uh, JB Holmes who is not considered a short hitter by by any means um, and that is that Hideki goes um, he has some graphite design shafts in his in his uh, driver fairywood and fairywoods 8x in his driver it's like 9x in his 3 wood 10x in his 5 wood which is just a, like a monster um, but then 
of all things, he goes to S400 shafts in his irons. And again, same thing. Nick Taylor used S400s the week before at Waste Management. And a lot of people ask about this because the question I get all the time, one is about like my own speed training, but also just in general is like, why do certain players play certain shafts? And the human element, which we've talked so much about, is that feel plays such an important role. Now, I've done videos before in the past um, with the company that I used to work for. It's a great video, and I still send it to people when they ask this question, and that is, do shafts make a huge difference on performance if they're in the same category? And if you look at just, just the numbers and one player hitting, the, hitting shots, in most cases, you're not going to see a huge variation in spin from shafts from the same category. What you will notice is a golfer's perception of the feel of that golf shaft being hugely different. And look, I'm not I'm not picking on certain shafts, but there are shafts that are known to be very, very stiff because of their profile. One example would be like a C-taper from KBS or even like a, a traditional standard Project X, which is like what Rory uses. Then you get into like an S400, which is designed to feel a little bit softer, or even in some cases an X100, some people will find that it feels softer because of the profile of the shaft. And this is where delivery is actually the most important element because what the player is doing is they are getting into their like load pattern or transition or whatever you want to call it. I, I'm Chris will probably use some better terminology than I will, but the way that they load the shaft that they feel that it loads and unloads to them in that vernacular is important to how they deliver the club because the shaft does not spin the golf ball. The dynamics of impact spin the golf ball and the shaft will change a player's dynamics into the golf ball, which changes spin. So when someone says, oh, well, if I put this shaft in my irons, they're just going to spin more. It's like that could actually be the opposite because you might be delivering it differently. And a perfect example of this, Martin Baumgartner. World long drive guy, massive human being. If you've ever stood next to him, I saw him at the PGA show. He's wearing his little shorts that go halfway between his knees and his waist. He is a monster of a human being. And he's walking around there and he's like, he must have done some fitness thing before he was on this presentation or whatever it was. And you have to remember, he uses like some L flex shaft in his long drive driver. So don't tell me out there, you folks. Oh, I just picked up a ton of speed. And I need to be like, I need to up to this. I need to up to this. It's like, well, if it loads properly and un, like the way it should for you, then you could basically use whatever shaft you want. I'm thinking Autoflex and Adam Scott last year, he tried it. His dispersion went to crap. I've tried it before. I don't like that shaft because it's just the way I load the golf club. But Hideki is this great example of one size of flex doesn't fit all through your set. So make sure that as you're going through this process, don't just randomly pick shafts and say it's this flex it should work because your perception of feel is so important and i can bet chris you've probably seen some examples where you give a shot to a player and based on their tempo they're like this thing feels like junk oh absolutely i mean essentially if you're looking at the shaft as a component on its own it it basically comes down to head is going to be predominantly responsible for the majority of launch conditions, start direction, speed, spin, and shaft we look at more or less as a timing mechanism that complements how it is that the player moves and the angles that they create in the load pattern and release pattern. So if you're looking uh, at a shaft as handle stiffness, mid stiffness, tip stiffness, 
and you're trying to partner those components of the shaft up with what it is the player's trying to achieve, at the end of the day, the shaft allows the player to be conscious and aware of where the head is in time and space during the swing, find the center of the face at impact, and return the face to square during the swing. So nuts and bolts shaft fitting is complementing bend profile to player profile. Now, flex, manufacturer, weight, if I'm prioritizing anything in shaft fitting, it's going to be weight more than flex. Since we've talked about before, there is no industry standard for flex. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's kind of interesting, and I've done a lot of shaft testing, and I 100% agree with Chris. Uh, length and weight are the two key factors. And normally length, you know, is regulated, I'm guessing. You know, you're not adding an inch or something like that to, to a player. But um, what's really wild, and we still see it in, when I first saw it, I thought it was an anomaly, but I've seen it multiple times. The problem is I can't quantify what the cause is, but I know it exists, is I have tested two shafts, to Arby's point, in the same category, same flex, same overall weight, but different bend profiles they will have the same launch condition and this is where my head hurts but two to three hundred rpms difference in spin so you've got the same head same launch so you would think theoretically the head's being delivered the same and yet the spin is different and the only thing that i can kind of um my hypothesis is that it there is a delivery that's causing the launch to be the same, but there's a slight difference in how that club is, is approaching as it comes in. And in doing so, the CG location of the head is slightly different, causing difference in spin. I never would have believed that, until, but I've seen it probably 20, 30 times to the point where I know it exists now. But my, my theory prior to this was, okay, if a shaft was, uh, let's just say, higher launching, it would be higher spinning. If a shaft was lower launching, it would be lower spinning. It's not always the case. There is some dynamics, and a player can definitely create it where you get slight differences. But still, especially if you're over 100 miles an hour, two to 300 RPM can be quantifiable distance differences without a doubt you know from a from an overall um performance standpoint i think a part of that is like when we talk as you exactly your point like the deflection of the shaft and i can think of examples where i've given players a stiffer shaft and because they they, they can't feel it loading they are putting more effort or they're they're trying harder bad i don't know other any other way to use it they're literally trying harder to load the shaft it messes up their timing they early release they add loft the next thing you know they're spinning it more and they're looking at the numbers on the in the simulator the on the on the launch monitor in their fitting and they go this this is a low launch low spin shaft what's happening i'm like well it's you it's not the it's not the shaft the shaft's not doing anything the shaft is an inanimate object it's how you're delivering it into the golf ball because of your reaction to what you are feeling and so I think that is the one thing when we talk going back like to the main point of like Hideki is like he's he you see his driver he gets out there he's not quite Cameron Young where he like gets to the top and there's like it feels like there's a pause and he like he's frozen like the, your your YouTube video is paused for a second he's like then he snaps through 
but he has like this pause, which he has changed. He actually, if you look back at older videos, it was longer, but that load pattern is very different than someone who would like get back and fire through very quickly. So for him, that's just how he feels the shaft. That's how he delivers it properly. And at the end of the day, it's the same shaft that he uses all the way through his wedges. And when people ask like, what's the difference between like tour product and like, like regular person product, all I can say is that I know for a, f and there's no difference. It's not like he hard steps or soft steps. From what I understand, talking to the true temper guys in the past, there's no difference there. But with Hideki stuff, there's tour, you know, like the tour issue label. Well, guess what? There's the, there's the secret Hideki label and every shaft is measured to the 10th of a gram. So those are the Hideki shafts in the true tour truck. If they're going to build them a new set, because, uh, he gets a little picky and you know what, when you're as good as Hideki, you can be as, as damn picky as you want. See here you guys. And this is a really fascinating conversation because shafts to me, like even now after having been in the industry for a while, shafts to me just scare the ever living crap out of me because you you think you have it figured out and you're like oh yeah this is this is my this is my you know flex and weight and and profiles that i like and everything is good and then you see somebody like hideki that sort of breaks the the conventional mold of how you would expect the shaft profile to to go throughout the bag and i think more than anything these types of conversations reinforce the importance of getting fit like if if Absolutely. you're going if you're going out and buying uh you know let's just say that there's a really hot shaft out on tour and you're fascinated by it and you go spend 3 or 400 bucks on this particular shaft and get it built up and test it and it doesn't work i mean that's a, unless you have a lot of disposable income i mean that's that's a pretty good chunk of money to just spend on on a whim you know shot in the dark and Again, it really does highlight the importance of like everybody delivers the golf club differently. I, I continue to go back to when when we went and tested all the the Fujikura, the Ventus TR stuff in Scottsdale, and RB went through it. And you know, if we were betting money on on what shaft he would end up in, I would have given, I would have like set the highest odds on the red based on like how RB delivers the golf club. No, oh, it was the best one, and so it, it just. Again, cha the shafts that we've talked about in the past, like start with the head, fine tune with the shaft, I think is I think is a really great way to do it because you can do a lot of great things with the right golf shaft inside the, a head that is optimized to your game. But again, don't just assume that what you have right now is the best. Like get with a good fitter, have them like walk you through, like establish a, a baseline for where you're at, and then have them figure out if there's something else that's better for you. But don't, don't, don't try and do it alone. That's uh, that's my that's my uh, sage piece of gear advice for today. And the the reason this comes up, and the reason I want I wanted to write this piece was because um, I have, I have a friend who uh, recently went for a lesson, and I kind of know the the, the obviously my friend and the person I, I recommended, and. Great, like he's a good coach. Like he's a knowledgeable swing instructor. But he messaged me because I obviously like fit and build golf clubs. He's like, oh man, your buddy's great. He's got a ton of speed, but he really needs to like move into this golf shaft. And I said, no, he doesn't. Like he, he recommended something that was stiffer and like heavy. And I'm like, first of all, I, that's fine, but let me explain why not. First of all, you're talking to someone who has like pretend, like has at some point talked about lower back problems. You probably didn't discuss that. Like when you think about club fitting. So he needs something that might be a touch lighter than like something that is mega stiff and mega heavy. Secondly, like 
he's going to deliver the golf club almost the same. That's why he's talking to you to lower his launch and lower his spin. Like, let's not focus on like, you need to do this right away because I'm going to do this. Cause I get questions all the time. I obviously I put myself out there when I, I, I let people ask questions and it's like, what's she asking a lower launch and lower spin for me? And I'm like, none of them. Like it, you might find a slight variation or a difference, but like go change your driver loft on your adapter first, go do this first. And all of those things together are going to be the, the, the factor that goes into creating better launch conditions. Just randomly saying, I have a 10 and a half degree driver and I, I launch it high and I need a low launch shaft. Well, guess what? You're still playing a 10 and a half degree freaking driver. Like, you know, it's yeah. it, that's the, the whole thing. And that's why I just, yeah. I wanted to highlight this because I'm not, I'm not getting upset at these people. I'm just trying to help them understand that like, don't go waste your money, which is exactly the point you just made. I'm not going to tell you to go buy something just to go buy something unless you just want to go spend money on something. That's fine. Like, that's cool. Like, by all means, I don't care. But, you yeah. know, think that, about that is, that is so all important. the factors. That well, and, and, and that's a really good point. Um, and to your point, so I was at the PGA show and uh, I was in the Foresight booth with my robot and next to us was a hitting bay and it was the indoor uh, test center. And all these long drive guys kept coming up every day and hitting. And I, and I kept talking to them about their shafts. And most of them were in, you know, industry parlance, A-flexes and weak R's. And, you know, these guys are bringing 200, 210 um, ball speed. And it was, um, it, it was amazing to see. And I know working with Bryson that uh, his his flex is an R flex, you know, for 190 miles an hour ball speed. The point being, uh, and Chris, I'd love your take on this because these guys have, you know, I, I'd throw the long drive guys out because accuracy is not as important as just pure distance. But a guy like Bryson is, um, you know, he's making his money with the with the weak r and it it kind of leads me back to that old adage that you should play the shaft that is uh the lightest and most flexible that you can handle would would you agree with that you know kind of old adage and obviously it you know but it it these guys have kind of upended the norms of you know as rb was saying the faster you get the more stiff you need so i i'd love to hear your take on that yeah that's actually a question that uh gets asked a lot and also is is part of my training protocol for our new fitters that come through is understanding shaft fitting player objectives and essentially cause and effect when you're pulling levers in a fitting environment. So, I mean, the uh, going back to Hideki and looking at the S400 in his iron, uh, I mean, you look at that particular instrument and you go, okay, how often is a player like Hideki going 100% full bore with an iron swing? Now, that same iron also has to feel good and respond when he's hitting a knockdown shot, when he's trying to shape shots, when he's hitting anything less than a full shot. And if you're playing something that's so heavy and so stiff, it's extremely difficult to get a consistent feel and reaction out of that particular golf club. So, Gene, to your point, like when you're conducting a, a player interview, 
I'm asking, are we focusing on distance? Are we focusing on control and dispersion? As I can accomplish both of those things with making adjustments in shaft. So I can get you more ball speed and the ball goes further, or I can give you more control and add more spin. Which one do you want to see? And so it just kind of depends on objectively what you're looking for. But general rule of thumb with irons, the softest shaft that you can get away with that still gives you a good amount of control is the right shaft. Before we, we switch to the next topic, I, I do want to ask you guys a question because this is one that I feel like we all have received a handful of times, which is golfers see pros using shafts and some are, are kind of what I call stepping down in, in weight. So they'll start with it in Hideki's a perfect example. He's, you know, 8X in the driver, 9X in the three wood. 10x in in the five wood and then you see some players um i think of like a like a sergio garcia who is is a constant weight so it, he might be playing a 7x in the driver but then he uses that same 7x throughout the all of his woods and the question is always well which is the best option for me what are the differences there what's what's your explanation for why some guys prefer to to step uh up and weight, down and weight, I guess, however you want to explain it versus having a constant weight throughout the, throughout the woods. I would say that like, I, it just comes down to player, like total weight, total weight. That's that factor. That total weight factor is like the thing that I think is the biggest one because some players want that descending or ascending, I guess, weight into their shorter clubs. So they want to be a little bit heavier as they go through. And some players don't really notice a big difference. They're, they're more, they're more focused or they're more uh, sensitive to swing weight. And that to me is there, there's that balance of the two. Um, and it, it doesn't mean that a good player or a bad player, like a beginner player is sensitive to one or the other. Everyone is very, very different in how they perceive weight and mass. So I think Hideki's probably someone who fits into the, the total weight category, which is why he uses those S 400s and uses that the shaft that gets quite progressively heavier and starts with a heavier driver as well. Right. I mean, he's no, he's no short, knocker and he's using an 8x which is probably one of the heaviest shafts that you can get on on tour at least one of the heaviest shafts guys are using on someone's using on tour so i think that's just where the 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 breakdown comes from but for anyone looking for speed in most cases you'd want to stay as light as possible through the through the bag but again it, it comes down to that field preference which is, i think is really highly important all right we could continue to keep going on in the weeds, but I want to I wanna keep things moving and spend a little bit of time talking about another Kirkland product. Big surprise there. Um, yeah, so just here in the last, I mean, I don't know, last day or so, some spy photos have leaked of a new Kirkland Signature KS2 mallet. And this is a winged mallet. Although I got to say, Costco in in tailor-made are already in a, a legal battle over the over the Kirkland irons and and how closely uh, at least allegedly that's that's what that's what tailor-made's claiming how how closely they they mirror the popular p790s if you look at this ks2 putter what what's the first putter that comes to mind when you when you see this this overall look 
What's it, what's the fa- is it the Fang putter from Odyssey? What's that called? The seven or something? Yeah, yeah. Putting? I mean, it, it is. It's it's like yeah, a, it's a, a number, number seven. Number seven. A popular. It was. It's. A, I mean, that's a popular shape, and we've seen everybody. To me, it, it has a little bit of the the Spider GT Max vibe going on. Like the that's overall pro- profile. The other day. Like a, yeah, a, kind a little of a, more little, squared off mallet. Little, yeah. yeah, a little little squared off, a little angular there at the at the ends at the end of the fangs. Kind of a thicky putter, not not you know super not a super thin version. It doesn't have the the adjustable weights going up and down each each one of the each one of the uh, the fangs. But <laughs> when I saw it, I'm like, oh cool, maybe there's another lawsuit coming. Uh, I mean, if yeah. we get into the details, yeah. I think it almost looks like, um, I'm just trying to figure it out. It's like, there's a ping putter. I can't think of the name of it though, which is the, which is the problem. It's like the, I think it's the Tyne, which has that similar. Yeah. Yep. Um, Cameron champ uses one that's called the, the prime Tyne. Yeah. So like, I mean, that, I mean, you could, it's kind of one of those weird, it's like, you know, you get the, the, the putter nerds who talk about, I'm not picking on them, but like, you know, they're the putter nerds. Um, we're like, you know, this is a ping answer, but this is, you know, this is like the difference in the this type of answer putter or whatever. And there are, there are, there are slight, slight details and bumper width and angles and all of those things. So you could, you could pick and choose on all kinds of stuff when it comes to this. But um, yeah, I mean, like, what is it? Set, like winged mallet seven, a, yeah, prime, the prime time. Like, there's just a lot of ways you call, it. but you know, it's, it's a winged mallet, it's a popular design. Um, the funny thing to me is, and I had I, I had someone on Instagram, it was probably close to a year ago, he actually just reached out again, uh, Lex, a couple days ago. He sent me a box or a picture of a bunch of putter covers on a table. And obviously, like, it was from a manufacturing place overseas somewhere. That's as much detail as I'm going to give. And uh, there was a mallet cover that said KS2 on it. And he goes, I wonder what this means. And that was, like, 12 months ago. <laughs> so, you know, the fact so maybe that... You're, maybe and you're I, saying these photos aren't new? Ah, uh, I'm saying that the the putter could be new. The putter, co- I only got a picture of the putter cover, like, and it was one picture. So, um, I think it is interesting to look at it and be like, you know, you see so much in advance of like what's going on, but like the consumer's getting something six. It's like you know, you go. To, it's like one of those weird things now. Like I always think about it because of like working. I used to work at a Costco a long, long time ago, and uh, like thinking of logistics and all that stuff. It's like all the stuff that Costco gets for Christmas time that comes in like October, that had to get ordered eight months ago, which means, or even like a year ago based on forecasts from before. And now they're like, it was manufactured, then it was put on a slow boat, then it got over here, then it went to their distribution center, and then it ended up in their warehouses. So like you start doing the math on this stuff where you go to a dollar store and right now you got like, no, Valentine's Day is over now, but like St. Patrick's Day is coming up. All this St. Patrick's Day junk that was made overseas was made a year ago. Then it got in a slow boat, and it finally came its way here. And so when, like, end of February hits, they could throw all the green crap on the wall. So, like, <laughs> that's, that to me is where, like, it's it's so fascinating that, like, you know, this took – this was probably been in production or been in, like, an idea for well over a year. It's just now someone got a hold of it. Someone took a picture of it. And uh, which means to me, with all the branding and everything that was, that was in those pictures – we're probably not far off from one of these things hitting the shelves again. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I think it just further confirms that, that Costco is, this is not just like, they're not going to be in the golf ball business and that's it. I mean, they're, they're full on every product. Now they're starting to add different options to the lineup. 
you first you had a blade putter now you're gonna eventually looks like you're gonna eventually have an amount putter so um yeah they're not going anywhere and i i don't know <laughs> i just want to i just want to see if there's more lawsuits i just i just love any any time there's chaos that's that's my sweet spot so at least for now we know we embrace chaos you're just yeah, not going to find one of those putters at a true spec i don't think so <laughs> chris is just shaking his head he won't even answer the question you won't even answer he just chooses not to respond. <laughs> there's neither, no chance. Neither confirm nor deny. Yeah, there's I, no I will confirm you that you will not have a Costco putter at a true spec. <laughs> 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 I, will, I will not be charging someone a Fair fitting enough. fee that is equal to the price <laughs> of the putter. Yeah. We can expect this one's probably going to cost, what, like 99 bucks? No, the I mean, the putter was 149 which I think was – I mean, it's probably going to be in the 150 range, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, and do what they did last time. Super, because it's like super stroke grip. They had on. You could buy the weight kit separately. I think. In, what were they? I think maybe it was one twenty nine for the putter last time. So I mean that's reasonable considering like most. I mean yeah. heck, an AI an AI one putter, AI one milled putter now is um, what four ninety nine, which is kind yeah, of great. They're, like, they're, when you think they're about pretty, like they're pretty expensive. Odyssey's price point in Canada that's six ninety nine. That like think about that's a lot of money or it's, it's like, like a five, driver. five it's like five seventy nine yeah so um, they come in with a putter at one hundred fifty bucks someone walking into a Costco is like that's a that's a damn steal right I mean yeah the average Costco consumer is household income is probably around one hundred eighty thousand dollars total like you know they're they're talking to people who is the target market of these things so um, no once it comes out I'll. I'll do what I did last time. I'll just find one and ship it to Gene's house, and then he'll ship it to me, and we'll deal with that logistical nightmare again. <laughs> we don't we don't talk about that stuff. That's their their circuitous route to get product to RB. But um, yeah. yeah, well, you gotta you gotta stop by my place. You gotta stop by my place and hand pick it up. I'm not shipping anymore. I'm not going to UPS. So you gotta you gotta make a trip out here to do it. Uh, I think I think you could twist his arm and he'll he'll do that. Uh, anyway. What else we got? Oh man, yeah, I was saving this one towards the end. We do have an interview this week. RB had an opportunity to to chat all things Vokey SM10 with with Aaron Dill. He's not on Vokes level just yet, but AD's moving that direction. He's he's like the guy now, along with Voke when it comes to to Vokey wedges. Anyway, so we'll have that interview at the end of today's episode. But before we do that, Rory McIlroy is now giving Scotty Scheffler his thoughts on the putter. I do find this rich. Speaking of mallet putters, there you go. There's your transition. There you go, yeah. <laughs> I do find this rich, guys. I got to say. And you know what? Somebody asked Rory about it. He's going to give an answer. But, man, if, if you look at this, Rory and Scotty are basically the same guy absolute nails from td green like scotty scheffler's having like a i mean not just a career year career ball striking year but i mean one of the best of all time right i mean the the numbers are are absurd and the one the one club we've talked about it before and scotty doesn't want to talk about it anymore so now it's everybody else talking about scotty's putter struggles but it is it's the putter somebody asked him about you know what would what would Rory do? And 
Rory said, yeah, we've all been through it. I've certainly been through my fair share of putting woes through the years, and I feel like I've broken through and become a pretty consistent putter. Yeah, I would say at, at times. Uh, and he said, for me, going to a mallet was a big change. I really persisted with the blade putter for a long time, but I feel like your stroke has to be so perfect to start the ball in line where the mallet gives you a bit more forgive, um, margin for error. That, to me, gave me the confidence that I could go forward with that, knowing that even if I don't put a perfect stroke on it, the ball's not going to go too far offline. And it's pretty pretty much in line with what we said about mallet putters in the past, which is mallet putters give you a, a bit more wiggle room if you don't you know, hit it out of the middle. I, I think back to the photos that I was able to take last week at Riv of Tiger's putter and that perfect wear mark. I mean, you could line it up with, with the sight dot on top and it's almost directly underneath it. It's, it's insane, but you know, not everybody is, is a consistent, you know, he's going to have consistent contact. So that's where mallets come into, come into play is, you know, the, the overall, the heavier head, the, the overall stability there. If you're hitting it off the heel or toe, you're going to have a heavier head that's going to help reduce twisting, which will hopefully lead to more consistent putts and get you closer to the hole. And maybe, you know, every so often you actually make a putt that you would have missed. So yeah, mallets, mallets are good, but <laughs> again, uh, Rory is, is not, you know, he's not Brad Faxon and he's not uh, Denny McCarthy or some of these, you know, not Denny McCarthy because he's been a, a pretty consistent putter over the last few years. I, I don't know. Again, Rory's, Rory's asked a question. He's going to give you an answer. But I don't really know if he's, he's the best guy to be providing advice. I mean, Scotty's tried, Scotty's tried you know, mount putters. He, he's currently in a, an Olsen putter. That is a bit on a bit more on the wider side. It would kind of be like a like a plus version, but a bit wider with with the flange. Last I saw, and I, I saw him working with Logan Olson on putters at Riv last week. A few interesting models. Nothing that I can can report on just quite yet, but some fascinating stuff going on with the weighting. So I don't know, man. Is Scotty gonna figure this out? I would really like for him to go on like a tiger-like tear. He he is he is a he is a mediocre putter away from being an absolute world beater. I I see this I see this as a little bit of gamesmanship. It's like putting another thought into his head, and you know, based on based on the reporting on this pod, he's got a lot of thoughts in that head as it begin you know to begin with, and now you're throwing in a mallet on top of it all, and it, it it's paralysis through analysis you know the interesting thing about mallets and having tested them and i think we talked about i think you wrote a story about this when i think it was zalatoris missed uh, a putt at 18 on the farmers um because he hit so badly off the toe and on his uh mallet and caused gear effect and because that weight is so far back it can actually, when you miss hit, you have to adjust for the fact that you create a little bit of side spin. And if that's if that putts over ten feet long, that side spin, you know, on a toe shot will go to the left, and on a heel shot will go to the right. Something a lot of people don't know, but you do need to factor that in. And you know, I recommend with mallets when you're on the putting green just kind of intentionally hitting them on the toe and the heel just to get a sense of how they perform so that, you know, you know what that's going to be like 
and you can kind of, you know, adjust your miss accordingly. I was a I was a longtime blade uh, player, and I still prefer if I can to play a blade. And I have a couple new ones that I'm really excited to try out um, that have forgiveness built into them in a smaller shape. Most notice most uh, the newest one would be um, whatever I can't remember the name of it. The PXG one. It looks like a it's a heel toe mallet with a plumber's neck, <laughs> but I mean it's it's got a ton of weight in the heel and toe. So I'm like really curious. Um, to kind of give that a shot, but I've gone to a mallet, I've gone to a long putter, and I found that my putting has gotten in general better, especially on longer putts where you have to make a larger, longer stroke. So um, I still think inside of five to ten feet, you have to learn to read a putt, which is still like the most important thing. I almost think he's struggling just with as much with that as he is anything else. And the other thing too, which I, I I'm shocked that we don't see more of this because a lot of these guys. They get into this, and I'm not I'm not crapping on this like brand, but like I'm I'm just saying it's like kind of like this, what's happening. And like you have a guy like Jordan Spieth who has not changed his putter really at all. He's tried different things, but he's really kind of stuck with it, and he still has pretty much stuck with the same style and shape, super stroke forever. And you know he kind of figured it out, right? But of all the things that they they haven't changed, maybe they're just doing it because they're trying to eliminate variables. But like Scotty, every last time I saw him at Pebble when he was working with putters, and I, I talked about it, uh, wrote a piece on it, like. Every single one of those putters has the exact same grip on it. Like, change a feel. Change something there. Whether it be, like, a round... Like, you got a guy with the best hands in the world. Get a round grip on there. Just to feel the putter release or do something different. Because it, I think it there is, like, the idea of the paralysis by analysis. But from a Quintic perspective, Chris, here's what I want to know. What is the difference when you get a player that is between a mallet and a blade? Like, do you see that, like, the Quintic numbers really, like, tighten up? Just like you'd see, like, a high MOI driver kind of reduce spin variance? I mean, not necessarily. It's it's all relative to the player, right? I mean, going back to yourself, like, I love the look of a blade. I love the feel of a blade. And inside of 10 feet... I, I'm really comfortable with a blade, but you get me much outside of 10, 12 feet, and it's just an absolute dumpster fire. And, I mean, you you do have a lot more room to hide as far as ball striking and consistency goes with the MOI in a mallet. But the as far as the player improvements or differences, there's so many different variables that we look at. I mean, we're looking at weight, we're looking at optics, we're looking at shape, we're looking at milling or insert type on the face, we're looking at grip, and we're looking at shaft. There's so many different variables that go into it. And I mean, you can get a lot of results just by changing the optic. You can get a lot of different results by changing the actual shape of a putter. I mean, if you're looking at just static shapes, you know, square things have a tendency to be more left biased for a right-handed player. Round shapes have a tendency to be more right biased. And then you bring in offset neck configurations and it totally changes the release pattern. I mean, and facial awareness. And I mean, potentially even strike location on the face. Same thing can be said for grips. I mean, a round grip allows the player generally to want to release the head more a square grip with a definitive edge and line on the top, you know, makes the face want to, eh, you know, not release as much. So there's all kinds of different things that you can look at in putter fitting. 
I can remember being super, super excited when Superstroke released like the one by one, which was like the perfectly square putter grip. I remember seeing at the PGA show that year, they had the big tall Superstroke guy in the costume walking around, which was very funny. And uh, I was like so pumped to like try this grip out when I finally like got a chance to try it out. I'm telling you, six holes into my, my round of golf, I like walked to the car and grabbed my other putter and was like nope this is not the grip for me i was you know it's it's, it's like it doesn't feel right it doesn't we've all, we've all been there rb we've all i was like screw there. this i'm grabbing and i like i've used and i use a lot most of the time like i'm using a some if i'm using a a standard like normal length putter i'm using some sort of smaller super stroke grip but that square one let me tell you that was the worst that was probably one of the worst experiments i'd ever had um and i know people who've gotten it and they love it like they, they, they grip differently, have like some sort of like different, whether it be a claw grip or whatever, right back, what, um, left hand low or whatever. Um, but that, yeah, it's sometimes you just gotta, it's like the one thing sometimes you gotta like open a different door and find a new opportunity as like, whatever they say. Some, I'm sure some motivational Instagram account probably written something like that. They just didn't mean it when it came to putters. It's funny you mentioned that because I remember when it, when Arcos came out with the very first set of sensors was so excited you know you like jam those i mean they were probably about an inch an inch tall and i put them all on the the grips and then that was like that was the original stuff like you didn't really have much else and i went out and i shot like 45 on the, on the first nine holes with these with these in there i was so pissed man i'm like god dude, like it was just like visually my grip looked longer like the entire club. And I was like, I can't like, I, I can't get over this. So I, I ripped them out. I was like, I, I, I love these. They're cool. I like them, I, but I can't like, there's something about it. That's just screwing with me. I, and I, I pulled them out of my golf clubs and shot 34 on the back nine. <laughs> it's just like, man, I, I think we all, we've all been there. It's a product that we're excited about. Now, of course, Arcos has some really cool products where you don't even have the the sensors in the in the butt ends of the grips anymore so uh anyway but yeah it's, it, it happens from time to time before we wrap this one i did want to say that rory being a realist here you know he offers some he offers some some you know tips to scotty on you know maybe trying a mallet but he does finish with so i'd love to see scotty try a mallet but selfishly for me you know scotty does everything else so well that he's giving the rest of us a chance and i feel like everybody else on the pga tour probably feels the exact same way so they probably hope Scotty continues on with the blade putter, but who knows? Maybe he figures it out with the blade. I I am of the, the belief. F- I'm of the belief that he should send everybody away and just just work with the putter that he's got and figure it out. Sometimes you don't was need the to make four changes. putt to win the Masters the ultimate like mind mess up. <sighs> that's a that's a good think question. about that. I I don't know. I mean, he was. He was I've, putting, I've thought he was about that more than so once. Well. I'm like, he, he made it on the PGA Tour with the uh, with the same uh, Super at one from Scotty Cameron. It's not. It's then, not like he's. You know, it's not like he struggled with the putter. He's never been a great putter, but I, you know, it just. I, I think the big thing for him is he. I think he worries too much about like people's perception of his putting. I think I think he's I think he's like letting the outside outside noise and this is just like one man's opinion. I think he's letting the outside outside noise get to him. I think if he were to just like say screw it, like I'm just going to go into a silo and just work with this putter and try and figure it out. I'm not going to 
not going to worry about what anybody's saying. I'm going to give the same canned response anytime somebody asks me about the putter and just try and figure it out. I think he would, I think he'd get back there, but I, I do. I think he's, I think he's self-conscious about it and I would be too. I think any golfer would be, you know, especially if you're, you're like right in the spotlight, which he is, it's tough. So, but I know that Rory and, and the rest of uh, Scotty's colleagues are probably happy that he's struggling with the putter because if he wasn't, if he was just putting like average, he would probably be beating the field by like four or five shots every time he teed it up. Like Tiger, I think Ty, I truly believe, and we don't know because we haven't seen it, but I truly believe he, if he was an average putter, if he was just around, let's say like zero for strokes gain putting, just zero, I think he would be winning by like four or five shots every time he teed it up. He's that good from tee to green. Um, so this, do, this right. doesn't bode well for like, um, just so from Riviera, they showed this graphic on Sunday and it was tee to green. He, is, he was ranked second at plus, plus 1.93. Around the green, he was ranked second at plus 1.77. And his putting out of 51 players, he was ranked 50th at minus 1.32. If he was, yeah. as to your point, if he was just average, that'd be more than an extra stroke per round of golf, um, which is he would, he would be insane. He would be murdering so, the field. I, I, think, I yeah. think he would be, he would be like putting up Tiger numbers. I do. I, I, he'd be winning that much. I truly believe that because he's from Tita Green. He's he's practically unbeatable. Uh, anyway, all right. So before we get into uh, RB RB's interview with with AD, let's do a couple of fully equipped hotline questions for this week. As always, if you want to leave us a voicemail, the number is six zero two nine three five four nine seven four. Again, that's six zero two nine three five four nine seven four. Coach, I think you have a couple teed up for this week, so let it rip. Yeah, let's go with uh, this first one here, if everyone can hear me. Um, it's <laughs> probably directed towards Chris. It is a question about getting fit at Truespit. Good morning. This is Brett in Charlotte, North Carolina. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I have a question about mini drivers. Uh, pursuant to the last episode, I played my mini driver right after listening to the pod about the episode and probably had one of my best days off the tee. Uh, probably a question for Chris McCormick. If I brought my mini driver head to a spec location, could I just be fitted there for a shaft that better fits my swing profile and all that? Thanks, boys. Have a good day. Bye. So the silent. <laughs> well, no, I was I was thinking how to respond to that. I'm here. I'm on it. I got it. I was thinking he's having audio issues again. I thought it was a Coach, bit. Thanks to God. <laughs> Jesus. I did think it was a. I just think I did. I thought it was a bit too. Anyway, I sorry. was I was coming off mute. I got a little background noise here. I was trying to be courteous. Uh, sounds like you're on a jet plane at times this episode. <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on. I, I'm just ready to scrap everything and start over with all new tech. This is crap. Anyway, uh, to answer his question, uh, you can come with the mini driver. We can get some baseline numbers. We can do some testing. But with the length of that driver, we don't have a shaft matrix specifically to cater to the mini driver. So... The way that it's kind of set up, it's obviously shorter than the standard length driver. And I say standard very loosely 
uh, being between 45 and 46 inches, and then longer than the standard three wood. Again, standard being loose term with 43 inches to 43 and a half inches. So I mean, the mini driver could be more similar to the bend profile of an actual driver. So, I mean, you may benefit from going in and doing some testing with a driver just to figure out what type of bend profile and uh, type of shaft would work for you and then build it to go into the mini driver. But there's not a specific way to test uh, shafts in that mini driver head just because of the length issue. Now, if you want something that is a sledgehammer and take the mini driver head and put it on a, uh, a standard driver length shaft, then, oh yeah, we could go nuts with that. But as far as being able to test what we would build uh, at the length that the mini driver is built and sold at, we don't have anything in the studio to do an apples to apples comparison with what you have bought off the rack, unfortunately. It's just one of those niche clubs, kind of like the the Callaway UW. I mean, it's a great golf club. ton of people use them. A lot of benefit to be had there in performance. But it's just niche in its construction, and we, we don't have the resources to have a matrix specifically dedicated to that type of golf club. All right. Well, there you go. There's your answer. And I'm sure that people out there that were wondering about mini drivers... Hopefully that helps you out as well. All right, coach, number two. All right, this one may seem easy on the surface, but I think we might get a couple different answers here. It's about what caused the biggest jump in prize money on the PGA Tour. Hey, guys, Scott from South Carolina, long-time listener. Just had a question. I want to get your take. Who do you think has moved the needle as far as prize money more, uh, Tiger Woods or Live Golf? Just an interesting question that I've been thinking about. Thanks. Appreciate all you do. That's a really great question. It's Tiger by a mile, guys. When Tiger's first paycheck was like two hundred grand, by the time you know they were, he was finishing, it did like eight times that. So yeah, sure. You know, a WGC was worth two million bucks ten years ago, but now you're only at not that we expect players to be winning ten million dollars a tournament, but a uh, Genesis was worth four, I think, or three point five or something like that, which is still nuts. But that's only double. Like the inflation, the Tiger inflation, um, I think is the uh, is by far because TV contracts went up, all of that stuff. At least that's my opinion. Um, I think it was, it was it used to, they used to do it all the time. They don't do it anymore as long like me. We're talking years ago, but no laying up used to ask anytime they did a player interview, they'd ask, how much do you think of your career earnings? Do you owe to tiger woods? And most players would say probably about 70% of it because <laughs> he goes, what would you pay tiger tax? That's the case. That was the question basically. And I was like, yeah, you guys owe a lot of freaking money to tiger woods. Everyone does more yeah. so than anyone else. In my opinion, again, that's my opinion. I mean, okay. I'll, I'll let I'll let Gene and and Serial Killer go before I get my answer. Go ahead, know, Gene. I, well, I was just gonna say, uh, hands down, Tiger, because you know it. It the 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 game in in his professional career has changed so dramatically. Um, it was you know 
and I'm dating myself a little bit here, but you know, golf used to only be shown on weekends. You know, you couldn't you couldn't see golf on Thursday and Friday, and now you get pre-golf content, media content like uh like the NFL. I mean, it's just it's it's all consuming. So Tiger hands down, but I think the caller has a really interesting point is that live golf has proven and I hate to say this because I I do believe he's the goat, but you know, and I think Riv was a classic example. We're in the post Tiger era of golf. You know, his era is over and we're in this new modern era that still has to be shaken out. But uh, the Saudis obviously believed that this has enough worldwide potential to throw a boatload of money at it. So this this next effect, while it's not Tiger-esque as far as, you know, the sheer scale, it's pretty massive. But I also would have to say it was built on the shoulders of Tiger Woods with, you know, without a doubt. Yeah. Zero killer. What do you think? Um, I'm in agreement. I mean, it's, it's Tiger and it's, he changed essentially everything with golf. I mean, the, the look at just the players in general. I mean, the athleticism, the physique of the players, you went from a John Daly to now you have this person that looks like an athlete coming out and just dominating. And to no surprise, the up-and-comers that followed him were, I mean, emulating what it is that Tiger was doing. I mean, with an entire team of people behind him from coach to nutritionalist to personal training and the physique changed, the game changed. And that's that's the Tiger effect for sure. So not only the income level, but the talent level and the depth of the talent pool, I say, is all a direct relationship to the Tiger influence. I mean, he brought it into the mainstream, like Gene was saying, and he made golf cool. He did stuff that nobody else had ever done before and brought an entire new viewership and audience to golf. And they went, wow, look at this guy. I mean, this is something different and exciting. And it got people talking about it. And yeah, like we we said, just brought a ton more money through sponsorship dollars. Yeah. I I, I get to, to, to Chris's point, I get to use one of my favorite lines in golf. I think it's been attributed to Lee Trevino and this just sums up golf pre tiger and the, the country club, you know, mentality is Trevino said, you know, it's been a long night when you wake up and there's still ice in your glass. <laughs> and that pretty much sums up these guys, you know, they get behind the gates a lot of the time, I mean, this is going back a little earlier than Tiger, but a lot of the time, you know, when I was a kid, the only golf that was shown was the back nine on Saturday and Sunday. They didn't even show the full, you know, 18. So um, he's just, he had a revolutionary effect uh, as far as the interest in the game and the... Um, 
the the sheer attention to golf and I I I think what made Tiger unique is Michael Jordan increased uh, viewership in the NBA, but he didn't increase basketball sales or he didn't increase, um, you know, people buying outdoor courts. What was interesting about Tiger was Tiger moved the needle in getting people to play the game, not only viewing the game, but getting people to play the game. And that's what uh, was really revolutionary revolutionary about him vis-a-vis Jordan. Jordan created viewership in the NBA and brought it to a new level. Tiger created viewership, but he also created participation. And for that, I think all of us uh, on this pod should be thankful for is that he helped elevate the game and interest in the game all the way around. Yeah. It, it is it is really difficult to not say Tiger Woods because if you look at what Liv has done, yes, you could say that they did something that we've never seen in golf, which is guaranteed money up front and a lot of it. But if you look at, at the guaranteed money, it's only going to a, a select group of golfers. Whereas Tiger Woods, everybody on the PGA Tour benefited from Tiger. And, and I think that that is the difference, is that Tiger Woods was was mainstream and he helped the golf industry, he, a sagging golf industry at that. He helped the PGA Tour. He helped all of those television deals. I mean, how much money did Tiger Woods bring to 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 all those TV deals whenever the PGA Tour was re-upping with, with the major networks? It's, it's just, it's impossible to quantify what Tiger did for the game. Whereas it, it does feel like Liv is, is pretty much just like throwing money around. And it does, it, I mean, look, it, the, what just happened on the PGA Tour with private equity money coming in, what is that, like a three, $3 billion dollars? Yes, right? Three yeah, billion. it was like 1.5 yeah. and then one, yeah. They, it was in a, a 3 billion based on like a 12 billion evaluation or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a lot of money. But that doesn't, it just, I, I feel like in the professional game right now, we're, we're getting to a point where, where we have sort of the, and I hate saying this because being a, having or owning a PGA Tour card is, is a really big deal, but it's sort of the haves and the have nots. We're seeing it in the signature events. Fewer guys are getting in, um, you know. It, it we're and those guys are having to go and play the the other tour events. We're now seeing sponsors pulling out of uh, title sponsors pulling out of tour events. I think about Charlotte with Wells Fargo last year. That so there there's a lot of money that's being thrown around, but it's being thrown around to a, a very select group of players, and and I think that's going to continue again. Whereas Tiger benefited all, so yeah, I, I would say it's Tiger. But a great question. And it, it's certainly not just a, yeah, it's Tiger. I think some people would say live, but I don't really think there's a wrong answer there. Anyway, all right, well, let's get into this week's interview. As I mentioned, RB had a chance to sit down with Aaron Dill to talk Vokey SM10. AD is the man out on the PGA Tour working with all the big names on their wedges week in and week out. He is, in, in my opinion, one of the one of, if not the hardest working guy out on the PGA tour, especially early in the year where he's just like, I mean, he's working in the truck trying to, to build wedge sets for guys. 
for, for basically from sunup to sundown. Anyway, RB had a chance to chat us some 10. It's a great conversation. Enjoy it. So I'd like to welcome to Fully Equipped, Aaron Dill from Titleist. How's it going? Uh, great. Thanks for having me. You say having me, but like I'm actually, you know, we're out here at TPI today, which has, has been a great experience uh, going through through wedges, going through uh, just understanding grinds. Because I know for, like for myself, I get a chance to like test a lot of stuff, but to get a second opinion is is kind of hard. Uh, so to get your opinion is uh, is very much appreciated. Um, when when you go through this process with with any golfer, I know we went through it today. What is what is one of the probably the biggest misconceptions right off the bat that a golfer will bring to the wedge fitting experience, and they'll say, "Oh, like oh, wow, I didn't like really expect that at all." Well, I'd probably say the first one is just general knowledge of of how far clubs go. I think that um, we have this. We have this thought in our minds that our wedges go a certain distance, and they're usually much, much shorter than, than what we remember. Um, so that's, that's number one. Number two is maybe spin's not as important as we as we think it is. And um, I'll tell you, I get to do this every single day. Spin is incredibly important. So you know, when when I'm when I'm sharing with consumers or tour players the the importance of making sure you have fresh grooves, you know, giving yourself the best ability and chance to manage and monitor that ball flight you're going to have better proximity into these targets you're going into, which essentially just means I'm going to make more birdie putts. So, you know, spin, extremely important, uh, as well as just, just kind of knowing what your distance wedges are or just distance in general. And, and a big part of, of distance control, which I, th- I think is, is really um, people can take home, is with, with the driver, high launch, low spin. We want to see that ball fly get up nice and high. And I have the opportunity and very lucky to be able to cover PJ Tour events. You work with the best players in the world. It's the exact opposite with wedges for more control, correct? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I like to say that parts of the bags tend to be very black and white, right? We 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 have a, a particular ball flight spin launch that makes a lot of sense to just kind of maximize what we're trying to get out of that club. With wedge play, it's so different, right? It's it's a distance wedge. It's a short wedge. It's a bunker club. It can essentially hit nine different flight windows. Um, we're looking for management and spin high and low. So there's a, there's a lot of gray area involved in wedge selection, which is why it's so important that you kind of spend some time getting fit, working with a trusted partner who understands equipment. Um, it makes a tremendous difference at the end of the day when you know the right wedges for you. And obviously we went through an outdoor experience today, but I would say nine, 90% of what we did was off of like tight grass mm-hmm. so for a lot of golfers the experience when they say oh i need i need 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 to get fit now yes of course the desire would be to be in a scenario where you're testing stuff outside and working in sand and working in grass but in reality a lot of that experience can be brought inside with the help of a launch monitor an experienced fitter and doing exactly what you talk about which is talking like hitting very very certain grooves like you say it all the time like Two to five. Why, why is that so important when we talk about impact location on a wedge? Impact locations, it's, it's a really important location to, to hit as often as possible because that's the best chance for you to not only flight your golf ball through a sub-30 window, but also to manage your distances, right? If you're above that, your ball is going to carry shorter. It's going to go higher, it's going to carry short, and you're going to see your spins drop. So when we can get our players into that groove's two through five spot, that allows them to launch their ball more consistently through the lower windows and keep that spin nice and high. So they have the best chance to stop the ball into those tougher pin locations. So you mentioned something there, um, and we're going to go back on this. So if you're listening out there, 
pay attention. I know you probably, maybe you were a big math fan. Maybe you were a big math fan. I don't know one way or the other, but let's talk about ideal launch for wedges. Cause this, I think is something that I never thought of from a math. I know the idea of like a window, but I never think of like what that window should look like. So when players are on a launch monitor, what is your formula for that? Cause this, this is such a great little tip that I think, again, I just learned it. I think a lot of people can take this home when they are if you're in-store or outdoor looking at hitting wedges. Mm-hmm. So I have a very simple sort of math formula that I use, and this is, you know, some some launches are lower, some are a little higher, but this is kind of a great way for you to understand, okay, this is the, the loft I'm using, and this is the launch window I should be trying to work towards. Take the loft of the wedge you're hitting, cut it in half, and subtract two. So if you're using a 60 degree, cut that in half down to 30 and minus two, you're at 28 degrees. That's really kind of the sweet spot launch angle you want to focus on. Um, when you look at TrackMan data and you watch your launch numbers go up and down, you're going to see fluctuations in your distances and your spins. So anything that goes above 28, you're going to see your carries shrink a little bit and you're going to see your spin shrink. And I think when we talk about wedge play, the importance of spin, how valuable that is when you're going into these tougher pin locations and firm greens, you need that stopping power. So it's not just about... Uh, you know, having fresh grooves all the time, but about getting fit properly, understanding the grinds, bounces, and lofts that are best for you, you know, and mixing that with some fresh grooves. And you've got a pretty nice recipe for success when you're going in into these shorter shots. Is is there a shot that you see, even on when you're working with great players, that they're always looking for this one thing? Is it is it bunker play? Is it shots out of the rough? Because they travel so much and play on different turf conditions. I'm out here in California. It's very different from the turf conditions. Let me tell you, got to play a little bit of golf while I was out here and my short game at times looked like I was a 20 handicap <laughs> because of the shot that I'm trying to hit. So do you see that when not necessarily, cause I know that players will fluctuate throughout the year or season, depending on where they are, West coast, Florida, that kind of thing. But is there, is there one shot where like you see players and they'll come in and go, this is this like this bunker shot is the hardest. Like this short bunker shot is this thing that I really struggle with. This long bunker shot is something that I struggle with. Is there this one area, or is it really just kind of dependent on the player? Well, for the best players in the world, I think they're all trying to be really good at all of them. You know, that's why they spend so much time practicing. Um, you know, you should be able to hit the high ones, the low ones, the right to lefts, the left to rights. All those different shots are you know, they're really valuable when it comes to the highest level of professional golf. Um, I would say everybody has a comfort shot, right? That's sort of up to you what you think that shot tends to be. I will say most players, again, have this sense of a flight window that makes sense to them, and it's pretty consistent. Again, it's a sub-30 flight window. You know, it's it's an efficient way to manage your carry numbers, but also make sure you have stopping power. Um, so they're definitely focused on that. But again, when I work with tour players on the road or here at Oceanside, I think that we try and focus a lot of our attention on on what we know are problematic areas, right? Places where you struggle. You know, you and I spent some time together. I asked you a lot of questions. You voiced your concerns and we focused on those locations. And I honestly believe based on the work we did today that the changes we made are going to make you better. It's going to increase your confidence. And the same sort of plan applies when I'm working with the best, whether you're on the LPGA, the DP Tour, the PGA Tour. If we address problematic areas based on what you do, places you're uncomfortable, the conditions you plan, I'm guaranteeing you your short game will improve. Yes, You didn't say PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, European Tour, Thursday Night Men's League. Yeah, it's not It's not very different. Very if different you play scenario. golf, you will be better because of it. And, I mean, certainly – I know everybody who gets fit, they're like, I want to hit flop shots. I want to do this. I want to do that. 
you know, my first question usually is show me an area where you're, you're uncomfortable, you know, expose me to the places where you're not feeling like you can pull off your best shots and let's address those errors and, and those places. And once we find ways to, to alleviate some of that stress, everything else kind of falls into place. Yeah. And we'll, we'll touch on, on product here because, you know, there might be some stuff coming. We'll see. But the idea of which I thought was fascinating and it's something that I've mentioned before when it comes to like irons or anything like that is the number on the bottom of the golf club is simply a reference for how far it's going to go. And you did something to my wedges today, which I've done a little bit of in the past, but something where when I, after hitting them, I was like, man, this just feels right. They look right to my eye. And that is not just adjusting lie angle, but adjusting loft to hit the distances because was it, uh, was it a 46 and then a 48? But it's like if someone were to look in my bag, they would see a two-degree gap. But I know for a fact that that's not true. So why is that important when you're looking at the matrix of options that you have for fitting a golfer? Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's a good idea to ever guess what's best for you. I think you know again when we talk about what's important, fitting is an important thing. We've we have a lot of models. And it could be very confusing to understand which one's best for you. In, in terms of, of why we made those choices, we did it because it was it was the best thing for you based on your attack, your path, your visual cues. I mean, you were very forthcoming in saying, something looks different here. I'm not really liking what I'm looking at. I'm not a fan of this offset or onset. I don't feel like I'm as close to the ground as I want to be. You know, those are the things that a fitter hears and a fitter says, okay, we got to change course a little bit, right? The fitter is basically setting you up for success and choosing a slightly different model that he or she knows is going to give you the best chance to feel like you can pull off those shots. You know, and in your case, we knew we had to hit certain carry numbers. I don't care what the number says on the sole. I just don't. That's not important to me. And there are many players out there on the tour that say, I don't, I don't want to look at that. That's why we stamp P, G, S, and L on the bottoms of these, these different clubs. We just want to find tools that that gave you the best chance to hit high quality shots. So in your case, you know, we needed to find not only a grind bounce and loft that made a lot of sense, but also the visual parts, which is how do we find the right offset and shape that, that your eyeball likes to look at. So we talked, we talked about the, the fitting and, and why it's important. And I think again, people can dive into that a lot. Um, but the one, the one question that I've, I want to ask you, cause I always find this interesting cause I've experienced this at certain points in my life. And that is, you know, Oh, what, what else can I kind of work on? What else can I kind of work on? The cool thing being here is you're innovating with product. Do you ever get bored or find yourself you want to challenge yourself outside of wedges or is it because there's always a challenge? Like I could, again, like if you're a car person or a watch person, I know we can kind of touch on watches a little earlier, right? <laughs> there's always these like little details that people are always trying to make better. Is that what drives you? I... I've been in this industry for a long time. I, I mean, like everybody, we grew up playing golf. Somebody somebody showed us the game, and we fell in love, and we were hooked. You know, for me, when I got into the club side of things, there was 14 clubs that I could pay attention to, right? Wedges pulled me in the most, and a little bit of it was Bob Vokey. He was just so nice to me. He was so gracious with his time and his experience. But the thing that I love most about wedges is the ability to make changes and to do different things and to explore different avenues. It's, it's an endless sea of 
questions and answers and changes. And, and, and I, I, not only do I love the fact that we, we can hand polish these things to look certain ways and to perform certain ways, create certain sounds, work through turf certain ways, but you can customize them with custom stamping. You can, you can do all kinds of fun stuff. And I just love the endless ability to, to take one golf club and turn it into something totally different. Uh, that's pretty different with other clubs in the bag. This basically gives me the freedom to, to do whatever I want and explore, explore any avenue that, that we want to explore. So when you're not stamping wedges or you're not grinding, polishing wedges, what does Aaron do? Aaron Dill do outside of, of golf that, that is another creative outlet? Gosh. Um, so I'm a, I'm a family man. I've got a wife, three boys, um, and I just love sharing my time with them. I love, I love them spending their time with me. Um, when, we're not, when I'm not home, I'm on the road 40-plus weeks a year. So you know the tour job is not – not a home every night sort of situation. So we're on the road quite a bit. And when I'm home, I like to, I like to be at home. I like to cook. Cooking is really fun for me. Do you um, have a style that you like to cook? See, I'm, I like my big food guy. So I like, I want to know now. Do you got like like a go-to? You got like a favorite recipe? I don't really have a favorite recipe per se. I, I like to learn. I, I mean, I think, you know, cooking is very similar to golf, right? There's this endless avenues of diff- different things you can do. Um, for me, I just, I, I'm kind of a, I don't know. I, I, I like to, I like to provide. I like to, I like to have people over for dinners, you know, so I'll cook whatever. Lately, it's been a lot of sous vide stuff. So I'll sous vide cuts of steak, um, pork, vegetables. Um, so I like to do that a lot. But I, I really love just kind of being around my wife and kids and, and watching them live their lives. You know, they're, they're getting a little bigger now. So, you know, just having a chance to watch them grow has been great. Very cool. Yeah, I'm a spicy food guy. Oh, I'm right there with you. Yeah, I was, uh, I remember when uh we moved we used to have, have like great indian restaurants so i was like i challenged myself for like months to like learn how to cook what's indian your spice food. number <laughs> yeah what's my spice oh that's what, good what's one. your what's your spice number now see so we can just relate this back to balance uh i would say like a seven i want to feel some heat i don't want to be punished for it there's a little bit of sweating in the seven range sometimes yeah, depends I'm on okay where you go that. i know i know here in the u.s when we go and we get indian or thai or anything like that and we ask for sevens it's it's not terrible but some of my trips I've taken outside of the U.S., I'm like, seven is the real deal. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really hating it right now. Stick with anything below five if you're, yeah. if you're worried. Just, five's a sweet spot. Now we we talked about this uh, as I was going through the process, um, relating it back to maybe not spicy food, but wedge flex. Yes, and weight, and talking about numbers, mm-hmm. and the idea of how important it is to find something that isn't just like oh this is my iron shaft i need to immediately because i get that question it'll be like i play this iron uh, shaft to my iron so i played all the way through my wedges should i go heavier should i go lighter and i found out today that i i personally prefer heavier mm-hmm. but when you go through that process is is there something as far as like tempo you're looking for a player like is there the shot like good or bad or is it truly listening to feedback because feedback and feel translate to confidence is is what 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 does that scale look like i'm never going to feel what you feel right i'm here to help you figure out what the best thing is for you so i ask a lot of questions i mean you you saw in our in our sessions today i ask a lot of stuff i mean i can't really figure out what we're what we're going to do if i'm not trying to get feedback from you so i would say that it's it's really common that when we when we start talking about wedge shafts and fitting wedge shafts we can go down this long rabbit hole of of things that you know can really overcomplicate it right and I, I like to tell players let's just focus on finding something that feels good you know and i think we figured out over the years of testing with different players that a little bit of weight 
and a softer flex is really kind of the best combination for that because wedge play is not about fast speeds, not about slow speeds. It's about all the speeds, right? Um, if you if you want to complicate it a little bit, you know, give yourself what's in the irons in the first two wedges, 46 or 52. That way you're you're kind of working off the same same shaft and feels. And then as you increase loft, start you know start going into something a little softer while maintaining that weight or even in some cases adding weight you know most of the players on tour are using something in the high 120 gram range you know that's a really common thing and that could be across multiple vendors um, if you're a slower ball speed player and you're playing graphite regular put that all the way through that's fine you know you're you got to get that shaft to work a little bit for you if you're a higher ball speed guy then it's you know it's important that you have the best of both worlds we need something that that you know, you can put a lot of speed and tempo on. It's going to maintain that that stability for you, manage that spin and launch. But also when we get in those higher ones and, and you're starting to slow down, add some of that feel. Soften it up. Keep that weight. How has technology changed the way that you develop product? Like, oh, obviously, oh there's gosh. the feedback from players, but the ability to, say, 3D scan, 3D print, look at um, using even TrackMan and using data and being able to look at even just the data capture that you get from the highest player like highest level players in the world using Shotlink or whatever they're using like how has that changed the way you approach the fitting environment when you work with players and also just from the development process so our to start our our ability to learn and evolve has never changed bob vokey said for years i have the best r&d department in the world it's the pj tour and he's basically saying I use the best players in the world from all around the world to figure out what we need to change and why. Um, I'm doing that same thing today. You know, Bob was great in kind of sharing that, sharing that knowledge with me, and and we still do that to this day all over the globe as we ask those questions. Um, I would say that when I first started in the early 2000s, um, we didn't really use CAD for a lot of stuff at that time. And when I first started watching Bob design, he was doing it in a very old school way where we were doing it off brass masters you know he was kind of doing it in the same sort of way where we, we we create a prototype we bring it out we test it we get feedback we bring it back we make changes but we were doing it today in cad back then he was doing it with brass masters and he was then hand filing and cha making changes with with a grinder and a hand file to create what what we what we know is the 200 series today and as time has gone on and we've learned more from our players and the ways we are focused on Groove technology, CG, shapes, you name it. Um, CAD has really helped us in a great deal of time kind of figure out what we need to adjust and do it in a timely way where we can continue to test it over and over again to find the best possible combination. What what excites you about coming to work every day? Um, I really love helping people. I don't know why. I just, uh, I, I've always loved the golf business, but what I've loved the most about the golf business is, is that this is such a social place. People are all coming to do the same thing they love. And doing it in a capacity in a capacity where we're doing it here at Oceanside and on the tour, we're just helping players find more joy in that just through success. You know, and I love the fact that players come to you with problems and 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 you can help them find solutions and they go and hit a couple shots and like, "Oh my gosh. This is so much better. I'm so much happier." You know, now I have that confidence and that that comfort to go out and do what I need to do and the desire to play golf at a higher level just continues. Um, you know, and, and having the opportunity to work with the best players in the world is, is huge as well. I love learning from them. Um, I just love the endless challenges. I mean, they just never stop. I appreciate that. So that brings to, from innovation perspective, the new product, SM10. What about this has been the biggest change from the previous generation and what are you really excited about on the consumer level, like being able to obviously bring with the best players in the world, 
but on the consumer level, what they're going to, to find a difference in this product. So um, from a development side, we're not really focused on one thing. We're focused on everything, right? And the feedback we get from um, all of our partners around the world, whether you're a professional player or you're just a consumer who loves to use our products, your feedback's valuable. We're using that every single day in how we, how we move forward. For me, we've made some shaping changes that I think are extremely important. I, you and I talked earlier today about the importance of what you love to look at. You know, if you don't like what you're looking at, you're, you're not going to want to take it home with you. You want to put it back on the shelf. Um, we've made some, some wonderful changes to the shapes and the sizes. Uh, we've made some, some incredible leaps in how we design through CAD with blade length and uh, ground heights, all these different measurements that we know the tour players and the best in the world are really paying attention to and value. Um, we've improved the way we cut our score lines, how we've designed our score line cutters. Uh, we've, we've further expanded our knowledge on what we know is good, efficient spin that lasts a long time. I think from a consumer's perspective, you know, spin is important. And I think we've done a great job of saying, yes, we recognize that. We're going to add some elements to this. It's going to make this groove last longer for you so you can hit those low shots at check. Um, and then just the importance of how we help players find lower launch windows. We've learned over the years that launching it through that sub-30 launch window gives you the best chance to hit those carry numbers, um, but also gives you great spin numbers. You know, we And those are, the two, those are really the two things that we think are the most valuable when it comes to proximity to the whole shots is, Let's get you through lower windows. You hit your carry numbers much better and you get tons of stopping power. Um, so focusing on all those different things, I know it's just kind of the fast little nickel answer there, but those are really the key things that we're paying attention to every single time we launch. And I'm extremely excited to bring SM10 to the market. Now, another part of that, when you talk about the, the even just like the cutting as a perspective or the, you know, using technology to advance the way you design product, is it is it driven from you going to an engineer and a designer and saying, you, we need to change this because it's our request or are, is there, is there an, like an inverse relationship where an engineer will say, Hey, I think we figured out a way to do these grooves differently, bring it to you or a robot or whatever happens to be just from like, just from a testing perspective and say, let's get out there, put this into play and see if we can implement it into our next product. Yeah. I mean, it comes from all different areas, right? Um, if you were to come here and meet our team, you'd say, wow, for such a uh, an impressive and very successful brand, there's not a lot of people here on this team, um, and that's what I love about it the most is it's a very family kind of oriented sort of sort of group. But we're all very objective. Uh, we ask a lot of tough questions at times. Um, design comes from everywhere. I don't just come home and, and ask Bob, "Hey, would it, would you be okay if we try a couple different things? What are your thoughts on this? What do you what do you think about this?" I go out on tour. I get some feedback. I try and collect as much data as possible. I bring it home and I say, hey, these are some of the things that I think we should be paying attention to. Um, and before we even consider putting this in our line, we vet it out, we test it, we try it. And it's not just with the best players in the world, it's with our consumers here at Oceanside. You know, they have just as much of a say as Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth, who are our, kind of our, our main guys that we love to work with because they're so good at being honest. That information comes from everywhere. And then I'll ask our partners in Europe, in Japan, in Korea, and say, what's going on over there? You know, what are your players saying? What what are we seeing in the marketplace? How can we get better, right? That's always the goal is we know we make good stuff, but I know we can get better. I just got to understand what that means and does it mean that for everybody in the world? Because we wouldn't just make it here for the U.S. It's got to work everywhere. So before I get to my my last question, I'm going to ask this question, and that is, uh, I know this is curveball, um, 
Can you think of a time where you thought or the engineering team brought something that thought was going to work and it didn't work, but it led to a, an advancement down the line in something else because you saw, I want to say the word failure, but it's not a failure because testing is designed to advance and whether you're or, and learn basically and educate yourself. So whether it's, it's right or it's wrong or it worked or it didn't work, is there a, a time where you were like, well, let's try this. And it was like, okay, that probably wasn't the best idea, but we know to the next one that there's definitely going to be something where we can look at it and say, this is going to work for the next option. Every, every week we deal with things like that. I mean, we, yeah. the tough part about designing a golf club is we have certain rules and things that we have to follow. Um, we would love to make it spin a whole lot more. We would love to make it launch a whole lot lower. We'd love to do a lot of different things. The challenges come in. Can we make it? Um, will it stay together? <laughs> you know, is it going to fall apart? Uh, you know, is, is this in the best interest of every player in the world? And the reality is, is that not everything is meant to happen. You know, not until you know for sh for sure that you can that you can make it in a way that it benefits everybody who wants to to use our stuff. Um, we've had tons of ideas and thoughts over the years that maybe we couldn't figure out in the moment, but that didn't mean that we didn't stop innovating and thinking about how we can maybe figure out someday how that could be part of what we're doing today. Um, there have been a couple little little ideas here and there that we've sat around and said, okay, well, let's let's really kind of run through the pros and cons of of these different things. And and there are some ideas at times where you go, you know what, it's just really not for us. It's not it's not something that we think is valuable to to what we are trying to accomplish. Um, we're not really. I use the term gimmick lightly. I just we don't we don't really introduce a lot of things that that are just there for for fluff. Um, Everything from the shapes to the score lines to the way we design our souls, uh, everything is inspired by something, and it's done for a reason. Uh, and I love that about our brand is we're just trying to make golfers better one day at a time, one club at a time, uh, without overcomplicating anything in terms of design or aesthetics. So let's let's get on let's to touch on the last part here, and that is something that I learned today, which I, I mean, I kind of knew, but it's always fun to like kind of get that refresher and experience it when someone else who's, who's better at it than I am, who's looking over my shoulder and, and giving me that, that helpful like guidance through the process. And that is, is grinds. Mm -hmm. And they know that the new SM10 has the largest, I believe it's the largest matrix that you've offered as far as, as bounce and grinds are concerned. So if you were to give, this is I know it's hard to, to summarize, but if you were to give advice to a, a golfer who's going in say to a retail store or or just try, maybe potentially buying online whatever it happens to be right what what is something that they need to keep an open mind about when they look at the matrix of grinds because there's stuff on there just like a, a fitter would look at a shaft wall and say that that one's not gonna work for that golfer that one's not gonna work for that golfer but i got my sweet spot that matrix has stuff that like you know you don't want this one which i found out today as i took some massive divots with a certain wedge as i'm going through that process what is the best part the best way for a golfer to kind of visualize what's going to work for them. So the, the simple answer is you should go get fit. <laughs> yeah. Right now let's say, let's say you have the ability to go get fit. I always encourage players. If you can go get fit, do it outside, right? Get yourself on real turf work with somebody who, who, who kind of has, who has a good understanding of wedge fitting, understands the product, get yourself on a monitor and run through that process right now. If you have the ability to only be fit indoors, I'm sure there's plenty of good fitters that can that can kind of run you through the process. It's not going to be quite as quite as fun or as as uh, uh, 
as detailed in the little things, you know, of what you're going to feel through turf and so on. But a fitting is is so important because it exposes you to a lot of the things that are really important in your wedge play, but more importantly, exposes you to a lot of things that you should avoid. Um, you never really know unless you try, right? I think it's one of the things that I tried to work with you today on is I wanted you to hit a little bit of everything so you understood why certain things did and certain things didn't work. And I think everybody who plays golf and and and, and takes value in their equipment should go out and get fit and experience it all. Um, you're going to learn a, a great deal. Now, if you don't have the ability to do either of those things, be fit outdoors or indoors, check out Vokey.com because we have some great fitting tools on there that you can look at. Um, you can do uh, our Vokey fitting tool that's on the site, and it's a great way for you to understand just through some simple questions. You know, hey, this is my course condition. This is my tendency. This is how far I do this and that. And it gives you an, a scary, accurate idea of what you should probably be into. And I think... It's kind of a cool way if you don't have the ability to get fit to, to understand the best stuff for you and, and the reasons why. That's cool. Uh, so, yeah, so if you, if you are curious and you're looking at some SM10s, you can head over to Voki.com. VokiWedges.com? Every, everybody should go there. Voki.com. Voki.com. That's what I thought. Voki.com. And you can use the wedge selection tool. You also can see all these really nice new finishes as well, which, yes. uh, which is have some, pretty great. You're going to have beautiful finishes. Um, you're going to have a more extensive line this go around. So SM9 was 23 different models. We're going to have 25. Uh, you talk about the most jam-packed offerings that you can get to play on any turf and any grass anywhere in the world. It's the most complete line of wedges you're ever going to find. Aaron, thank you for your time. Thanks for running through SM10 and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. And thanks again to AD for the time. That'll do it for episode 229 of Fully Equipped. As always, if you want the gear goodness, check us out on our social channels. We are at Fully Underscore Equipped on Twitter and at Fully Equipped Golf on Instagram and the YouTube channel. Thanks as always for listening. We'll see you next week.